Welcome, welcome everybody to this LSE public event, Social Infrastructures for a Post-COVID World. This event marks the launch of the second report of the LSE COVID and Care Group. And I wanted to give a really special welcome to our audience today because many of you are experts in the voluntary sector action and public health work that has got us through the pandemic and is needed for recovery from it. And we here in the LSE COVID and Care Group have learned from all of you and you're all front and center in our report. So welcome everybody. I wanted to start by going through the running order of the event um, and to tell you how you can ask questions at the end. We're going to have uh, about 50, 55 minutes worth of presentations and then 30 minutes or so of questions. And in order to ask your questions, you can click on the Q&A um, icon at the bottom of your screen um, and I will read out your questions and direct them to the speakers. So we're looking forward to some really exciting engagement with all of you. So I'm, I'm now going to introduce each of our panelists here today um, in their order of speaking. And all of them have been central to the pandemic response, both at national and local level. And uh, it's, our conversations will begin actually with the LSE COVID and Care Group represented by myself and Nikita Simpson. This is a group of 12 young anthropologists working with senior members of the department who since last March have come together to apply anthropology to policy questions. And we'll then be followed by Caroline MacDonald, um, who's Assistant Director of People, Places and Communities at MHCLG. And she started her career in the voluntary sector and joined public policy development in 2004, in particular around the regeneration of the north, northeast of England. She's also the reigning British wheelchair tennis champion and a former para rower champion as well. Next, we'll be hearing from Atia Kamal, Dr. Atia Kamal. She is a senior lecturer in health psychology at Birmingham City University, and she leads their health and well-being cluster there. And her research before the pandemic focused on dementia, childhood obesity and uh, chronic conditions. But since the pandemic started, she joined Spy B subgroup of SAGE and the ethnicity subgroups and has been contributing centrally to policy there. And next will be Pasha Shah. Um, who's Head of Community Engagement at MHCLG. Uh, he began his career in international development, in particular around issues around poverty and conflict. Um, and then he worked in the local authority sector in housing before joining MHCLG. And this year he received an OBE in the Queen's Honours List for Services to Faith Communities. And last but not least, we'll be hearing from Samira Ben-Omar, who's Head of Partnerships at the Northwest London Integrated Care System. And she's long been a community organizer and she's a co-founder of an important grassroots organization, Community Voices, that seeks to create relational healthcare. Um, and she's also on the King's Fund Central Advisory Council. So we'll begin with uh, Nikita and my uh, talk. Nikita, do you want to put the slides up? So in our report from the LSE COVID and Care Group, um, we have been reflecting on the lessons that could be learned from the tragic situation of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic in the UK and what could be built from, built out positively from what we've, what we've learned. Um, and we've watched this process in real time in the UK since we began our research last March with voluntary organizations and with disadvantaged groups affected by the pandemic. Uh, Nikita, please, next slide. 
And what we focus on in our second um, report, our first report looked at the right to care and issues around the burdens of care in households and made a broad range of recommendations around economic policies to support care and community-based um, policies to support care. But our second report has really narrowed down um, on the innovative measures that have been taken by voluntary sector and community groups uh, since last March. Um, and we saw as the pandemic unfolded a paradox emerging for policy around social support, which was this core problem of how can we keep safe from a virus that is transmitted by social contact while also providing vital social support. And we saw at the grassroots level and the national level the development of answers to this question. And the local answers particularly interested us because they showed a kind of process of both hard work, sometimes leading to fatigue as well, but also of innovation that we would say is equivalent to building bridges or a high-speed internet. Um, as one Somali community organizer put it in, in Leicester to me, he said, why would you build bridges, you know, like you've done during the pandemic? Um, and then burn them down. So we've been interested and challenged by that statement. We want to find ways to build up from, from these things that have happened at the grassroots level. So in order to reflect on this a little bit deeper, um, we carried out both ethnographic research and a survey that we sent out to 2,500 people. Nikita, do you want to put the next slide up, please? And what we learned both in our first survey and our first ethnographic work and resoundingly in our second survey um, and our second um, body of ethnographic work was that people of all classes, of all ethnic and disadvantaged groups had experienced the same phenomenon. They had experienced what we call a death of the social or the unbearable loss of social support relationships along with formal care because of national and local level interventions. And we found in our most recent survey that 40% um, of people that we surveyed had felt socially isolated during the first and the second, uh, second wave. And we also discovered that this um, death of the social had meant that there were particularly important groups of people who were now bearing an unequal burden of maintaining those social connections in the situation of, of national and local interventions. And that this burden had really fallen on some groups more than others, who included um, essential workers, of course, uh, women, especially middle-aged women, young adults. And it also left specific groups particularly isolated, the elderly, the, the disabled and lone parents. In fact, in our survey, we found out that 26% of essential workers experienced relationship strain and 11% said they had difficulty caring for children. So it gives a small spotlight of this broader burden that's borne by particular groups of people. Of course, also, there's been a tragic loss of life that has been unequal as well. Mortality and morbidity have affected some groups more than others. Um, in the second wave, especially Bangladeshi and Pakistani British groups. And this burden was great in itself, but it was also great because people couldn't mourn properly and they couldn't have the usual social processes of mourning. And in our survey, we, we discovered that 29% of our, our groups had experienced a bereavement, of course, much higher in ethnic and minority groups, and that this had been a traumatic event for them, more traumatic than in processes of normal death outside a pandemic. 
And this had led to a great outpouring of mental distress in the survey as well. The social death, we saw this reflected in outpourings around this issue of mental distress. The psychic cost of the pandemic has been great. We found that 81% of our respondents had experienced a new stressor during the pandemic because of the disrupted relationships. And these are, of course, once again, unequally distributed and leave a legacy of trauma. So what do we do after this death of the social? And Nikita will take over now to talk about that. Thanks, Laura. Um, so what was really resounding for us was that we realised that people were turning inwards to care for each other in order to deal with these new stresses and these new relational strains. And we call these networks the social infrastructures, and that's the kind of framing uh, analytic, I suppose, that really has helped us to understand the networks of care within and between families and the networks of care within and between communities. What's really important about these social infrastructures is that they're embedded in our ethical and cultural values, in the expectations that we have of each other at different stages of the life course, in our cultural mores. And what's really important, we found, was that these expectations had shifted uh, and were being strained during the pandemic. So really capturing the impact of the pandemic on these social infrastructures meant understanding uh, across the life course where there were unequal distributions of care, where there were forms of new burdens and where there were new inequalities uh, based on race, class, gender and other uh, uh, axes. The approach that we took to trying to understand these um, social infrastructures was a rapid ethnographic research approach, which we trialled uh, in the very early days of the pandemic um, with an amazing team of young researchers who already had deep links to people um, across the UK uh, through their personal and professional networks. And what was really different, I suppose, about this kind of ethnographic research was that we began, uh, was that we couldn't be there, right? We, we couldn't do what we usually would do, which would be to go and volunteer in a food bank or go and uh, uh, spend time in a place of worship. And hence, we uh, decided to take a different approach, uh, interviewing uh, particular people who we call local experts. And these might not be the kinds of usual local experts that are called upon in processes of consultation, but often they are, are people at the center of dense networks of social interaction who can see across different kinds of communities. So this might be a formal uh, community leader, or it might be someone who, uh, for instance, runs a small business and has interactions with people uh, across, across different communities. So we looked at particular microcosms of disadvantage, places where certain uh, 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 challenging things were coming together, uh, such as um, diverse uh, experiences, inequalities, deprivation, um, and we tried to scale up those insights using a survey. Uh, we also uh, did some deep co-production with um, varying organisations at community level uh, to try and generate insights together that could be fed back into the pandemic response. Um, and we worked with particular groups who we thought were really important. For example, uh, Leaders Unlocked, a group of young researchers um, who are from across the country who are working with us to build insights. Laura, handing back to you. 
actually, Nikita, I was planning for you to do this, this the case study, since you led, led on those, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. Um, so two of the really important case studies that we um, had were uh, from Hackney and Tower Hamlets that was conducted by Connor Watt and Jordan Vieira, both uh, in the audience today, uh, and in Ealing, um, where I think perhaps some of our uh, key interlocutors are also in the audience today. Uh, in both of these places, um, we have tracked the social infrastructures as they have moved and changed over the past 12 to 13 months. Um, and what we found was that in Hackney and ha Tower Hamlets, uh, as Jordan and Connor write about both in our first report and in our second report, a decade of austerity has starved the voluntary sector, meaning a fragile network of organisations entered into the COVID-19 pandemic. In Ealing, we saw a similar picture. We saw that inequalities within the borough make local authority support unequal, produce stigma and prevent health-seeking behaviour in some cases. But we also saw that some of these fractious relationships were actually being suspended as people moved together and built new partnerships and new forms of mutuality in order to meet need. And the resounding uh, message that we heard from many, many people um, in both of these places was that there's a necessity to invest in social infrastructures in order to sustain these partnerships and ensure that they equally uh, meet the needs of people across communities in these two areas. Laura. Thank you, Nikita. Um, next slide, please. So this leads us to this really important question of how could we support these social infrastructures, these, these social infrastructures that have, in a sense, been built against the odds during the pandemic. And we think a really interesting example of how to do this comes from the MHCLG-funded Community Champion Scheme that Atia Kamal is also going to talk about a little bit more later on. So I'm going to give you the, the headlines here. Um, the Community Champion Scheme from MHCLG, funded from January 2020, landed in this network of new social infrastructures that Nikita has described um, and amplified their effects. This kind of influx of funding allowed these infrastructures to continue a bit longer um, and to be scaled up to more and more important activities. And it's really important to note that the reason that the Community Champions Scheme, we think, was successful was precisely because it flowed into this relational work of these social infrastructures. Um, and when we studied this Community Champions Scheme, uh, we also looked at some of the key reasons that it was successful, in particular at um, increasing vaccine uptake in areas that had initially seen quite strong resistance to them. Um, and it was really founded on a kind of micro-knowledge that existed within local-level community organisations. It was also the fact that these organisations were giving multiple forms of care to people into which they inserted public health information about vaccines and sometimes literally doing that, so giving food parcels that had leaflets about vaccines to them. Um, and also alongside this, the Community Champions funding in particular allowed these organisations to come together with a common goal, in particular around building, organising vaccine hubs in mosques that brought together white working class community groups and organisations with other minority group organisations in, in a new way. 
Um, and that was a kind of concrete example of this cooperation, but that scaling up and cooperation happened in terms of information flows and information flows from these community groups to the local authority as well, overcoming some of those barriers that have been created by decades of austerity, where knowledge in local authorities have been, have been hollowed out. And we also saw that there were important side effects of this scheme on social cohesion, um, on the creation of partnerships uh, between different groups, and even in terms of jobs and skills training, because some organizations, um, community champions, were young adults who were being paid and being upskilled as well. So we see the community champions as a kind of small model, a kind of micro, what's well, actually quite a big example, but um, it's a kind of example of how this, this, um, these social infrastructures could join up with national level government efforts. Next slide, please. So on the basis of our body of research since last March and our most recent uh, body of research focusing on these social infrastructures, we have several policy recommendations that we think are vital for moving forward in the current form of the pandemic and into the future after it. First of all, we think that there should be a Royal Commission on social infrastructures where we could draw and gather together the wealth of expertise that's developed and been extended within the voluntary sector during the pandemic. And that that could then be the basis for the formation of a permanent advisory agency like the National Infrastructure Commission that would be the National Infra Social Infrastructure Commission that would help design, plan and fund these sorts of social infrastructures over the medium and long term. We also think that there should be um, a more unified national care service. One of the problems within government, as, as I've learned during my work with government, is that there are a lot of really hardworking people, but their efforts are very often siloed from each other. So we think that there should be more coordination through the National Infrastructure Commission, but also a national care service that's looking at social infrastructures in the round and to get over that coordination problem. We also think there should be decentralised funding for local community initiatives like the Community Champions. And we could use the expertise of national and local third sector organisations to think about how that should be done. There should also be, we think, a systematic funding and integration of ethnographic social listening and co-production at both the municipal and the national levels. And this would help us to build a more relational view of each other and a more relational health and provisioning system. So thank you. And yes, I just went to, yes, okay, great. Thank you. So I'll now hand over to Caroline McDonald, um, who I think is going to talk about what it's like to collaborate with, with academics. Hello, Terry, if you could put my slides up, please, that would be great. We could start with that slide one. So thank you ever so much for, for inviting me here today. Um, as Laura said, I'm Assistant Director with the People, Places and Communications and Communities Division in MSCLG. I've got oversight of a portfolio of policy and programme areas, working with communities of faith, with interest and, and geography. And in my presentation today, I'm going to draw upon our very recent work with Professor Bair and Dr Kamal on the Community Champions Programme to illustrate how, during the pandemic, we've developed partnership models between policy, research and academic colleagues, which I think can help us as we are supporting communities through the recovery phase and beyond. Um, I think there's been a lot of high profile work that a lot of people will see on the television or, or through media um, about how scientists and epidemiologists, modelers and so on have been advising government during the pandemic. But I'd like to highlight some of the work that many um, that may be a bit more under the radar with a whole range of academics and researchers in different fields, helping us to be much more agile and responsive during this period. 
which is a real impact on people's quality of life, their well-being and their safety. But I must stress, I'm very much talking about my own reflections and my own perspective um, about how we've developed policy. Definitely not the official government view. There are many libraries worth of books and papers on how policy should be um, developed, and I'm not going to try and replicate that here. But what I am going to give is um, a perspective from one civil servant of how my own practice has been evolving over the last 18 months. But I would say during the pandemic, um, we've had a, you know, helping to keep people safe has provided both the imperative and opportunity to work in different ways. And I believe it's important that we ensure we take the learning from this to support and the recovery of our communities. And I'd like to say also there's been many great examples of civil servants and other policy professionals working in partnership with academics and researchers. And the BCSE sector are often the experts in partnership working. I'm certainly not claiming to have invented anything, but I think the pandemic gave us an imperative to work at a scale and agility that's maybe given us a slightly different perspective on how we work. Um, Terry, could we have the next slide, please? So I'm going to talk about a, a short reflection on how we used to do policy development in non-COVID times in the olden days. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Community Champions Programme focusing on what for me has been a very different experience of policy development during the pandemic, and especially on how we worked with Professor Ben and Dr. Kamal. And I'll finish with some short reflections on what I believe we can take away for future work during the COVID recovery period and beyond. Um, Terry, thank you. So in general, my experience of policy development has been quite linear or perhaps circular, but definitely following a set path, starting with an issue we're trying to address or perhaps an improvement or enhancement we're trying to make. And in the civil service, this would always start with direction from ministers, as laid out in manifestos, but may come from something like an all-party parliamentary group report um, or an independent review. Or it may start with civil servants alerting ministers to an emerging issue that we've identified from our own networks or research. And following this initial steer, we would do research the issue and look at potential solutions um, and develop a range of options for ministers to consider. And this would be an opportunity to talk to lots of experts, including researchers and academics. Um, we get to read lots of great reports. And if we're really lucky, we might even get to attend a, a conference or two. Um, and I'd also like to give a, a shout out to our internal analysts and scientific advisors who, who do a great job in making sure we have access to good quality data and research. And then depending on the direction ministers give us, we'd start with implementation which could involve public consultation, independent reviews, green papers, etc., drafting guidance or a comms campaign. Could look something a bit more like a, a tree at this point, but my IT skills just went up to that. Um, but then we will bring it back together and, and we think a lot about how we capture learning, um, maybe with an evaluation or monitoring, and then we would feed that back in to the earlier point in the, in the, in the um, process. But for today's report, I think the important point to draw out from this slide is we usually follow a fairly set process. It can take a significant length of time to get to implementation, which isn't always a bad thing because it gives people time to feed in for us to consider and to capture what we need to. Um, although we can act very, very quickly when we need to, if there's an immediate crisis, maybe in the aftermath of, of a natural disaster or, or a terrorist attack. But this is definitely not the norm. Um, and although there are opportunities to work with academics and researchers, it's very much within a prescribed process um, and usually in, in quite set and, and definitive ways. But it was clear during the pandemic we're going to need to work with our academic colleagues and researchers in new and very different ways. 
and Mesites Terrid. So when we were thinking about the Community Champions Programme, what we wanted to do was very much focus on, on giving communities what they needed so that they can help to um, solve their own problems and, and help each other to keep safe. And it was about wrapping around those communities the support and help and tools that they need, the accurate information, the capacity, help and legitimacy, and to be able to, to support each other, to, um, to talk about COVID, to, to share information in an accurate way, and to help each other in the ways that, that, that they could design and would know best how to do. Um, in order to do that, we had to support the, eco, the whole ecosystem around our communities. So thinking about building trust between communities and government, local and national networks, sharing information and intelligence and best practice between communities themselves, between central and local government, our VCSA partners, businesses and community anchors. And it was clear that our usual way of developing policy simply wouldn't do. It wasn't going to get us to that place. Um, so my experience of how we develop a programme looks much more like the next slide, please, Terry. So it looked much more like a starburst. Um, and in, in the middle of the starburst was the project team holding together the links between VCSE partners, local authorities, government departments, policy teams, the links into our, our, um, into our own stakeholders. Everybody else had links to their own stakeholders, but very much it was about building the cross-government and cross-sector ne um, networks to be able to feed information we can gather from our, from our communities and VCSA partners and local authorities into government policy in real time. So, for instance, when we received intelligence from our VCSA partners that, say, younger women from some communities were receiving misinformation regarding the impact of the vaccine on fertility, or from our faith communities that information, misinformation has been spread about the vaccine being non-halal or not compatible with, with Ramadan, we could pass this information immediately on to teams in, in DHSC to give them a chance to respond. But we were also able to share um, across our community champions networks who mobilised very rapidly and dynamically to help countering and countering these messages in a rich and varied range of ways. Little snapshot, for instance, we had some um, webinars and groups for South Asian women provided by women from their own community um, and delivered in a, a culturally sensitive way and in a variety of languages, which covered a wide aspect of women's health, including giving accurate information on the vaccine. And also working with NHS um, and to set up pop-up vaccines in a wide range of faith settings, producing social media content of trusted imams and other faith leaders taking the vaccine and talking about its safety, importance and compatibility with faith teachings. But for me, one of the most important elements of the success of the programme has been how Professor Bear and Dr Kamal embedded in our programme team. Um, as, as I'm sure you're all aware, Professor Bear and Dr Kamal helped to write the, the SPIBE paper on which we based our Community Champions programme. But they also brought their knowledge, expertise, experience, networks and resources to help guide our programme and help us with research within um, communities in real time to understand how the programmes are playing out in the ground. This is fed directly into um, the programme, the voices of our communities, which has helped us make decisions about the programme to ensure we are providing the most effective support needed at any one point, and also that our messaging is productive and not counterproductive. Um, they've been 
I'm sure, sure Dr. Kamal will talk a lot more about the research that they've been doing in, our, in three of our community champions areas, alongside the research that Professor Bear's already undertaken over a longer period in London and Leicester, um, and meeting with us on a weekly basis. So we've got this information informally very, very quickly, meaning that the pro programme could be very responsive, but also producing more formal reports that we can use to help evidence the effectiveness of the programme to help with future policy development. So some examples of how this has helped us is, for instance, in the transition of the Community Champions Programme to help promote vaccine uptake. So when the programme was first developed, we didn't have a vaccine and this wasn't a, a focus of the programme. But when the vaccine was developed, many of our local schemes pivoted to include increasing vaccine confidence. But on the advice of Professor Ben and Dr Kamal, we've been very careful about how we talk about this so that we don't stigmatise certain communities who may have lower levels of vaccine confidence. And we don't want to undermine the, the work of community champions on the ground who may not want to be perceived as delivering government messaging in communities where trust is still being developed. We also identified the need for training for community champions and for scheme coordinators, which have been able to develop for us as the programme is, is progressing. Um, and I'd hope that the approach of embedding researchers into our programme team also brings some advantages to the researchers. I'll maybe leave that space a little bit more for Professor Bear and, and, and Dr um, Kamal to talk about. Um, but, you know, I would, I would like to think that, that we could help, you know, by providing our own monitoring and, and, and the, the information that we gather to help with your research too. But I would say that the approach, while being really successful and, and, and one of the highlights of my career, also requires a high level of commitment from both sides. Um, we must be able to, to trust each other We'll be sharing information that may be highly sensitive and maybe wouldn't want to share more widely. And it takes patience and resilience. Policy professionals and academics may have very different constraints and ways of working, potentially different expectations and time scales. And we need to be able to understand each other's perspective and not lose heart. We can't immediately achieve everything in the way that we would want to. Also, I'd say during the pandemic, we've all needed to work very quickly and nimbly which creates new opportunities and a sense of collective endeavour. Um, in peacetime, we may need to try and capture the best of this practice, but there will be some sense of rebalancing. For instance, in the timescales it takes um, from taking policy from early ideas to implementation. And I think that for some work, we may need to return to a different pace of, of working. And that could, could be really helpful, create more opportunities, but it could be frustrating too um, in, in, in some cases. Um, could I have the next slide, please, Terry? Um, so, um, how am I doing for time? Do you want me to speed up a little, or am I? Yeah, yeah, maybe just like maybe two, three more minutes. Okay, thank you. So, I would just say that the, the program has been incredibly successful, and with nearly thirteen thousand community champions now working across communities, which were mobilised within just four months. And we've had some really, really wonderful engagement from grassroots organisations working with the very hardest to reach and fragile communities. And we've been involved very heavily in delivery. Um, I was going to give you some little pen pictures of wonderful things that, that our community champions have done. And maybe if we have time right at the very end, perhaps we can come back to that. Um, but if we could go on to the last slide, please. I'd just like to give some, some takeaways, some things that, that, that I will carry with me from, from the programme and, and maybe for us to, to think about. I think incorporating research alongside programme design and delivery offers real-time insights and really 
helps us to be much more dynamic and agile to change programs as, as, as we're going rather than to wait till set periods and points where, where we might want to change things. Um, embedding academic and research colleagues into program teams can create important benefits, including levering in their networks and resources, as well as bringing expertise, experience and subject knowledge. Um, but the deep partnership approach takes commitment and understanding. And I think there'll be different challenges to doing that in peacetime than, than maybe the has during this, this quite extraordinary period that we've been through. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Caroline. Um, and I'll now pass over to Atia Kamal. Thank you. Um, share my screen. Um, can you see my slides? Yes, yeah, lovely. So, um, I, yeah, I'm also going to talk about community champions today, and uh, it's very much extending what Laura has shared and, um, and also um, reinforcing, Caroline, what you have shared in terms of the, the um, partnership working. And I think the, the main theme for uh, of my presentation is partnership working. But I decided to take this right back to the beginning in terms of where we were at the start of the pandemic, our learning as we have progressed and what that means for us moving forward. So, um, so I, what I'll do is I, I'm not going to talk about theory too much, but I think it will just help in terms of um, it, it will allow you to see how I, I have framed and approached some of the challenges of the pandemic. So um, prior to the pandemic, I, I um, am a practitioner and a researcher looking at the, the role of culture in health. And so I'm part of um, sort of a global health partnership. And, and, and it's where you have to take into consideration those social and cultural influences. And we can't just take a one size fits all approach. And, and, and that's it was those influences, I guess, that I just wanted to tease out and share with you today. So um, as part of my um, work, I would just bear with me. Um, so my role as a health psychologist, um, it's, it's to understand the influences on behaviour um, in order to remove the barriers and create a supportive environment which promotes health-seeking behaviour. Now, as I say, I'm not going to talk about the theory in too much detail, but very briefly, I'd just like to share a theoretical framework which outlines how we can understand behaviour and therefore how we can support people with the right resources and the environment for their needs. Um, so here we have the COMBI model. Um, now, according to this model, for any behaviour to occur, and, and, and I talk about behaviour in terms of those supportive mechanisms that have been required, that have been essential to, to the pandemic response, um, that for any behaviour to occur will require um, three conditions. Uh, an individual must have capability, that is, they, need, they must have the knowledge and skills required. Um, the next uh, question would be, are they motivated? And motivation is around um, you know, weighing up the pros and cons of doing something. And of course, what we have seen are some of the challenges around um, self-isolation, where the costs actually outweigh um, the, the, the benefits or the perceived benefits of, of isolating when there's, there are financial barriers. And motivation also refers to identity and, um, and the way that people relate to, to different groups and, and messages. Um, and then also we have um, opportunity, and this is social opportunity. So, you know, the social influences of individuals and institutions and how that might impact behaviour, but also physical opportunity, things like the physical environment, um, time, resources, location, financial constraints. And 
the main point here that I'd like to share is that um, what we saw um, in some instances at the early stages of the pandemic was that you know sharing sharing guidance and knowledge alone wasn't enough you know that that was targeting capability but what we can see here is that there are there are wider influences on behavior which are just as important and so you know just to share information and to leave it with an individual actually inadvertently um increased stigma and the language of blame because um there was a sense of well you have the information why aren't you following it as i say not recognizing that, that the, those broader influences were also essential so what we can see here is that behavior occurs in this wider social and cultural context you know, there are hierarchies unwritten social rules that uh, central government local authorities may not be aware of um or equally you know the, the unwritten rules that institutions follow that community members might not be aware of and and uh, and they can either encourage or they can discourage um um supportive behaviors and understanding these wider influences is essential and that's where the role of theory can be helpful just to sort of guide and frame our thinking in terms of um mapping influences identifying where the challenges are and where the support is required um so in line with this framework what i did um is i've sort of engaged in lots of um lots of interviews actually i was trying to to sort of document how many interviews and focus groups i've done and so definitely nearing the the 100 mark um but but those were interviews with local authority partners uh, resilience forums community members themselves um they um the it's involved survey data as well but but the idea was to understand what was going on um for for communities themselves and and how best to support them so at the very early stages of the pandemic um some of my engagement work showed that actually there were huge issues of of mistrust um mistrust in terms of who those sources of information were i just like to to share a quote that that really stayed with me um actually this was about a, a year ago that this was shared was that you know why should we believe the same media that has spent years demonizing us um and then you know we suddenly expected to believe and listen to everything that they're saying about a pandemic and so it just shows that that erosion of trust uh, occurs has occurred over time um there, there has been a gap between formal authorities and community groups formal authorities and residents also but then there's also um what was perceived as this active hostile environment as well with with uh, attempts to um to really um consciously or unconsciously um disempower communities um there were concerns around lack of authentic representation so here we see the complexity of trust here as well and this is about um not just having somebody who looks the part but somebody who shares the same value that is embedded within the system same values um at each at each level of the system and there are concerns that uh, you know this lack of authentic representation also disempowers communities because you know those individuals um maintain the status quo and and then and, and um this sort of re, yeah reinforces top down communications that may not necessarily be appropriate for for a range of communities was privacy uh, concerns um were shared around you know nhs test track and trace for example what happens with the data there were concerns around um engaging with formal health services so that you know very real fears that if i go into hospital i'm not going to come out alive and that delays um help seeking behavior um and and 
often symptoms are very bad before then um, formal services are engaged with. So all of these challenges um, became apparent at the early stages of, of the pandemic and, and those had implications for test and trace and, uh, and whether or not messaging was re uh, reaching certain communities. Um, and then Laura and I, as, as part of addressing some of those challenges, Laura and I were asked to have a look at the role of community champions networks. Um, and what we did was we developed a framework for the requirements of a community champion scheme to respond to these very concerns, to respond to the needs of communities, but also the needs of local authorities as well. So what we did was we interviewed um, local authority partners and community organisation partners we reviewed the community champions and disaster management literature. So we, we brought in sort of that theoretical framework just to be able to understand what that process of change was, but also took into consideration um, you know, practical constraints, resourcing constraints. And that's where our local authority partners were instrumental uh, to informing um, the recommendations that followed. So what we found was, of course, community champions are as varied as the communities and, and um, um, you know, they are often volunteers who with training will support and engage their communities to promote health. And they will be varied, as I say, because they'll reflect um, different communities. Um, but the main what they all have in common is that they are all closely connected with their communities. And what they do is they act as a bridge between national and local authorities with passive involvement in terms of sharing information, but actually, you know, in its truest sense of, you know, um, in terms of community empowerment, champions um, also have um, much more active contributions to make in terms of consultations, so providing insight into community needs, but also collaboration and working in partnerships, so having shared decision-making power. Um, and that's really important when um, it comes to uh, the role of settings and place. Uh, you know, if communities can decide where, for example, the, the best vaccination hub or the most accessible vaccination hub is, um, that's a huge barrier that's, um, that's been minimised and um, could potentially increase um, vaccination uptake where where practical issues um, are are the challenge but but most importantly champions can achieve the most impact um as I say, when, when they're given that power to co-create um solutions to the barriers experienced by the community and not seen as as passive so if we think back to the early stages where trust in government and particular media sources um were low in the early stages of the pandemic Champions have been a key pillar of support. Um, you know, they 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 not only build trust, but they are um, they are capitalising on on the trust that has already been built um, and developed over um, you know previous encounters of of you know support giving, whether that's via a food bank or completing universal credit forms, for example. They can dispel myths and disinformation, so they're well placed to be rapidly responsive and again create those local and context specific solutions they have better reach into communities um just thinking of some of the um south asian women's groups that uh, some of our champions have been working with they wouldn't be accessible to um, local authorities otherwise um but what what is really important here is that it's it we have a set of principles to follow and that there isn't a one-size-fits-all model for champions you know different communities and contexts require different approaches and it's trusting the champions and their knowledge of the communities and strategies that will 
will work and to enforce the same model on diverse communities you know um will perpetuate those health inequalities because you have subsections within communities as well. You know, a community leader may not be um, the most trusted voice, for example, um, for young, young females. And so the champions will know their communities. And um, things to watch out for. So, um, you know, exhaustion and stress, consultation fatigue is a very real thing. Um, lack of resources at times. Champions have, um, you know, that their time, of course, is, is um, um, there is a cost there, but also um, the financial cost as well. You know, the, the travel um, costs that are, that are undertaken or the, the mobile data, um, for example. So, so resourcing is a challenge and, you know, any community engagement work and champions work requires proper resourcing and support to maximise effectiveness. Um, but also um, active efforts um, must must at the planning stages, um, must there must be consideration of avoiding the traditional leaders, if you will, um, to be able to reach disadvantaged and marginalised groups within communities. Um, so here is a model that um, Laura and I have developed in terms of the, the role of community champions and how they can be scaled up and supported. And this is this is now taking all of our learning um, and, and thinking about what that could look like moving forward in the post-recovery phase of the pandemic. Um, and we also recognise that not all community volunteers and champions will have capacity to be able to, to do more than share messages. And that's OK. So it's about recognising that uh, there are different models and different approaches for people with different levels of, uh, of support and, and resourcing and motivations. So we have a communicator who is a champion who will share messages with the community. Uh, the next level up will be an animator who is a bit more active, attending regular meetings with coordinators, sharing that two-way flow of information. So again, not just sharing top-down information, but feeding back what's happening within the community for local authorities to also address. And then advocates, you know, these are champions who sit in committee roles. They, they're advisors within the community. They could be linked to GP settings, for example, but they have a formal role and they have um, the power to make decisions and, and and be involved in sort of project design right from the outset through to implementation and evaluation. So very quickly, because I'm aware that I'm possibly running out of time, um, the, the, the key message here is that when community members are treated as collaborative partners, they can create those local context-specific solutions um, across across a number of issues, the pandemic, infection prevention control, but also, you know, thinking back to some of the work that I've done um, in, you know, around dementia, for example, and, you know, um, the importance of community-led health to be able to respond to some of those challenges as well. So, um, you know, what do we lose by not having community partners? We lose key insights into important influences on behaviour that can support communities. Um, we have, um, there's an imbalance that exists which can perpetuate health inequalities. And these are, you know, those top-down structures that don't meet, meet the needs of diverse um, communities. Um, but the value of the partnership, of course, then is that, um, it's, it's recognising and um, the, the expertise that exists within the, the community uh, with the champions um, an example of a responsive partnership, not only between local authorities and community organisations, but also 
community organisations and residents and community organisations with other community organisations. So there's a, so the whole systems approach um, to this, uh, which can really maximise its effectiveness. Thank you. Thank you very much, Atia. Um, and we'll now hand over to Pasha Shah. Great, thanks very much, Dr. Bear. Um, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, rather, uh, everybody. I always get that wrong. Um, uh, well, this, this afternoon, I'm going to be speaking about um, some of the impacts of uh, the work that have been taking place in communities. Um, I was asked by Dr. Bear to um, present um, not just based on um, being um, the lead own community uh, champions um, as it's uh, impacting in communities, but also to, to cover some of the experience that I've had uh, of working in communities stretching back a good part of 20 years, I'm sure my age now, but stretching back some, some time. Um, one of the things that the, uh, that the pandemic has uh, really shone a light on is the importance of understanding how communities um, uh, uh, work, uh, how the, the, their own infrastructure um, uh, uh, it has been, and some of the challenges that they've had to face um, over decades now. Um, I, I, I look at the impact that the um, that the pandemic has had, uh, certainly on mortality rates and, and the psychological uh, effect uh, that was being spoken about earlier on in terms of communities. Um, and it really makes me realize that actually um, the, the trauma that, um, that certainly uh, ethnically diverse communities have had to endure um, has been immense. And the impact, the disproportional impact it's had on them uh, has been immense as well. But um, the resilience also within these community, communities is very strong as well. So um, I, I'd like to also touch on something um, that is usually equated to uh, ethnically diverse communities. A lot of the times people have, uh, and in particular in, in uh, technocrats have concerns about the lexicon of language, you know, should we say hard to reach communities? Should we talk about fragility, etc.? cetera? Um, these communities are extremely strong. Um, and um, when we talk about, um, you know, them being hard to reach, really what we are talking about is we found it very difficult to engage with them. Um, and the engagement element of these communities is something that uh, I, for one, have always, you know, even going back to my days of working with local authorities, have always found it really, really strange that local authorities um, and, and other authorities have tended to engage uh, with gatekeepers um, and not necessarily invested in creating gateways. Uh, and there is a distinction between the two. Gatekeepers do have a role to play in, in, in communities, of course they do. But um, being able to understand that they do not represent everybody within communities is, is something sometimes which is very difficult to sell to authorities. Um, and in many instances, it's because uh, authorities find it easier to speak to um, the one or two people, you know, the, 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 the representative who fits the mold of a particular community. Um, but then, um, uh, you know, the, the question marks are, and it's within communities, is this a tick box exercise, et cetera, et cetera. So we really have to be uh, serious and, and, and careful about understanding what we mean by engagement with communities and meaningful engagement with communities. Certainly, um, the, 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 the pandemic has shown us the, the, the benefits of 
uh, of reaching out into communities. And this is where our work with um, Dr. Bear and um, with, uh, sorry, with Professor Bear and with Dr. Kamal has been really important in, in, um, in really emphasizing the importance of um, moving into communities and working within communities in such a way that is meaningful for them and is um, is actually uh, reaching the the outputs that we require, which was uh, in the case of the pandemic to to ensure that you know health measures were uh, maximised and that people were kept safe. If we had uh, taken the the route of just speaking to community gatekeepers, I think we would uh, probably not have been as uh, impactful in terms of our work within communities. Um, and that has meant working with the VCSE sector uh, in, particular, uh, uh, in particular ways uh, and choosing the right kind of partners to work with who have legitimacy in communities, who have trust in communities, who have the ability to reach out into uh, the granular neighbourhoods um, who have legitimacy to be able to speak to the right people. Um, community leaders are sometimes, uh, you know, uh, referred to as individuals who have um, who have uh, an ability to represent their communities at forums, etc. But community leader, one of the things that the Community Champions Program has shown us, um, can be um, a, a hairdresser. It can be your local barber shop. Uh, it can be um, somebody who um, is, uh, a, 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 you know, works in a shop. Uh, it could be somebody who um, people have trust in just to be able to pick up the phone and speak to them. I think what has been uh, a, a another lesson to learn from uh, the pandemic has been um, that the fact that people have not been able to engage with each other in traditional ways. We have had to use um, influencing um, people who go beyond the, 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 the means of engagement um, that we've been used to, you know, the, the, the means of engagement that is um, actually um, more meaningful, more purposeful. Um, it's not necessarily been through the, the usual suspects and uh, understanding the, 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 uh, the, that the fact that the usual suspects have a limited role in making real meaningful uh, changes in communities is, I think, a real lesson to be learned for, for authorities and in particular ourselves in government as well. So we have to find new and, and meaningful ways of engaging with, with these communities. Um, and uh, understanding their own history as well, understanding that, um, you know, uh, in terms of ethnically diverse communities, um, uh, they have had to, uh, they are just, uh, they're not uh, simply uh, uh, conduits uh, to go through via um, faith communities or, or, or using the prism of faith to understand them. But there's a whole series of ways in which we need to understand them. In the same way as we understand any old communities, um, understanding the, the, the role of sports, understanding the role of, um, of, um, of local business partners, understanding the role of um, youth groups, understanding that actually, um, you know, women from um, many of these communities um, are really in, engaged in, um, in, in, in informal structures in those communities. And being able to tap into those informal structures is a very, very important way to, to reach out into these communities. 
So sometimes it is about tackling our own misconceptions and our own preconceptions about communities. And I think certainly working with, uh, with our partners here uh, has, has really enabled us to understand that in, in greater detail and actually being able to give verification, uh, certainly uh, in terms of some of the, th the theories that people like myself had, you know, uh, it's almost like a validation to understand that, yes, actually to get into these communities, um, there are means beyond uh, our traditional ways of engagement. The other thing I think that's really important to understand is that um, there are, as, as uh, Dr. Kamal was talking about, uh, in terms of cultural dynamics, uh, understanding the way in which communities function and understanding that those cultural dynamics could vary even within a community. So within a, uh, an, a particular ethnic group, there isn't just one way of engaging in, into this community, but a whole series of ways looking at intersectionality in terms of these communities is a very important uh, methodology to take into consideration. So community engagement, and you would expect someone who's heading up community engagement to say this, but community engagement is complex. Uh, and, and to understand uh, the complexity of community engagement is actually the first call uh, in terms of making some meaningful um, policy uh, decisions that is going to really have an impact on, on the life of people living in these communities. So I'd, um, I, I, I appreciate time that I've been given and I've probably gone very close to it. So um, without a presentation, you wouldn't want to see a presentation slide of me because I'd probably go on for another three or four hours. So I hope that's, that's enough and, and uh, will allow us to have some discussions a bit later on. Thank you very much, Pasha. And now I'll hand over to Samira Ben-Omar. Hi, good afternoon. And uh, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for allowing me to join you in this conversation. Um, I'll be short, I'll be very brief, and I just want to share with you some reflections of the work that we did in Northwest London, but also to share with you some of the work uh, around actually kind of how we uh, mobilize and how we actually kind of use different approaches for change and to transform uh, uh, the way we do things. I'm on annual leave, therefore I'm speaking in my own personal capacity. Um, and these are really my personal reflections of working as a mobilizer and a community activist. Um, I think probably for me, just to kind of share with you the uh, Laura mentioned at the beginning that I'm, I'm co-founder of uh, Community uh, uh, Voices, which is kind of really conversations for change. And the community voices is really was born out of frustration. And the best thing about frustration, it does mobilize people into action. Um, and it predates uh, 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 COVID and lockdown. And it really kind of was an emergent thing just post uh, Grenfell. I work in Northwest London, so an area where uh, um, the Grenfell disaster took place. So there's some learning and reflections around actually how community mobilizes around change. But Community Voices is not a program, it's not an activity, it's an approach. It's a way of connecting to communities around change. And uh, uh, the way we, uh, the reason we did that was very much around actually um, the way sometimes we define communities as other. So it's something that's outside of us. Uh, we're not part of that community. Uh, yet we all are part of the community, whether we live in the area or work in the area. So how do we actually kind of connect with our communities, not just by bringing our professional self, but also bringing our personal self? You know, I'm not there just as a head of partnerships, as a commissioner, but I'm also there as a Muslim woman who's 
you know, an immigrant who's for, you know, whose family lives in the area. So you have all of that and you have, so how do we enable and allow people to bring all of that into that space and connect with, uh, with people around that agenda? So, um, uh, and community voices really was an invitation to people to actually kind of step into that space beyond their organizational and community boundaries. So, so the idea is that actually we can't deliver change if we work within the confines of, you know, I'm, I work as a commissioner, uh, but I'm also kind of a member of a community. So where do I sit and how do I? So the idea is you bring your whole self into that space. Um, and some of the learning and the reflections really emerged from our post, um, uh, um, uh, uh, both post-Grenfell, um, uh, just observation in terms of how communities have come together. So if you ask people in the community, um, you know, what was your first emergency service? It was your neighbours, your community. Those are the people who were there on the scene first day you know, who actually kind of were mobilized, who came together organically. They didn't need a program. They didn't need an activity. They didn't need anything. They actually came together instinctively to support each other and mobilize their own communities. But predating that, and I'm not going to talk too much about Community Champions Program because that's really, um, we started a Community Champions Program probably a good 10 years ago, and we did a whole social return investment in the Byboroughs, really looking at impacts, not just in terms of communities, but impact on our own services. So, um, so what have been the learning from that and some of the reflections? Well, you know, the first learning is that communities do more when they decide for themselves. You've heard the amazing work, you know, Caroline mentioned, Pasha, Atia, you know, around actually the impacts when you enable people uh, uh, to actually kind of decide for themselves. Our jobs within the system are to create those spaces rather than dictate what the agenda is. Um, the second is actually kind of just looking at COVID and the impact of COVID and how community and faith spaces have mobilized, not just in supporting our communities, but certainly the stories that we've captured in terms of the impact of COVID and how people have come together. You know, we had, you know, the, 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 the good warriors, the mosques, the churches, the synagogues actually kind of, you know, delivering thousands of meals a day to our NHS staff. So our communities are critical. They are part of our wider workforce. So how do we mobilize and enable for that to actually kind of uh, continue? The third, and, um, and this has become more and more explicit as we actually kind of emerge from COVID, is that inequality and in particular racism has a negative impact on our community's health and well-being. And if we need any data, we can look at the Kevin Fenton report on the impact of COVID and the disproportionate impact. We can look at the national conversations that we are having about the fact that uh, uh, COVID has highlighted inequalities. We can look at the race and health observatory, certainly I'm from a health background, to just look at the data there. And that gives you enough to actually kind of be. So those are the things we need to acknowledge in order for us to actually kind of begin to think about what we need to do next. And the final one is just measure what people value. You know, if we begin to measure, you know, if we measure, you know, increased employment, maybe a measure that's really important to us as a system, but for our communities, good, safe, secure employment is what matters, you know, where you feel valued, you know, you feel that you're contributing to something. So there's something about how we measure and what we measure. And certainly for our community champions, when we did it and we looked at social return investment as an impact evaluation, we looked at co-producing the evaluation framework of our communities. And the, the, the outcome, because we're not coming through our system lens, we're coming through our, our community lens, it just kind of widened the impact. You can really begin to see the impact of that. 
Um, so, so if we, these are some of the acknowledgement, if you like, and reflections, what are the preconditions that enable us to do that? Well, one, the first one is actually kind of this unlearning as a system. And I'm, 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 I'm part of that system. So I'm also talking to myself. I'm not talking to just uh, people within the system. Is that we need to unlearn some of the behaviors. If we really want to connect with communities, we really need to shift away from the programmatic and transactional approach to a more creative and relational approach. That's our starting point. It doesn't mean that we don't do the program uh, tools. We don't use those tools. It's just they're not the right tools for to help us connect with our communities. The second, and, and this is kind of really interesting because when we started really kind of looking at some of this, we were looking at research. And if you look at when we looked at the impact of COVID on our communities, we really started to, because we had the frustration of the system saying, oh, you know, we don't know how to reach. I mean, there's no such thing as hard to reach. There's easy to ignore, but not hard to reach. Uh, so it depends on uh, whose lens you're looking at it. Uh, so I think there's something around that. Um, uh, but then it's just how do, what parity of esteem do we give to the stories that people tell us versus the, you know, the kind of the accepted form of research, you know. If you, I mean, when we started really looking at, you know, asking people about, you know, the impact, why aren't people getting really uh, doing what um, all the comms are telling them to do? It's not that they're not doing it. It's just where they're starting is a different place. We can't ask people to, you know, to isolate if they're living in overcrowded accommodation. You know, how, you know, or multi-generational household or multi-occupancy household. So how do we actually kind of start connecting and having those conversations the second, when we actually kind of really looked at um, uh, the impact of COVID, we really started just with how are you coping and how are you feeling? So to start from that, and we didn't mention NHS, we didn't mention COVID, we didn't mention any of that. Well, the first response that we got, and we got the videos, and I'm happy to share the videos of those, and we had we have 50 conversations for change. Um, and these are from clinicians, from uh, social workers, from uh, community mobilizers, from local people, faith leaders, from everyone. And the first one was actually fear and anxiety. When no amount of communication or information is ever going to address fear and anxiety. So how, where do we start and how do we begin to have those conversations around that? So it's kind of, there's a, a, there's a bit of that that we need to really kind of begin to think about and, and unpick. The final one, and I'll just be very brief, just in terms of kind of, you know, is what journey are we going on in connecting with our communities? Where does the journey start? And is it a shared journey? And this is a brilliant kind of just story from, so Robin Duran is the Chief Operating Officer of the Mental Health Trust, and she's a phenomenal uh, 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 woman who's actually kind of, I was talking to her about how being a brave leader, you know, kind of how do you become brave in actually kind of mobilizing? And it was very early stages of Grenfell, and she was leading on a lot of the, the, the work. And I said, Robin, why are you uh, actually kind of so willing to take so many risks in actually kind of doing this? And she said to me, her, perfect, her response was very human. She said, I'm grieving. I've just buried my sister when Grenfell happened. So I'm going through this myself, you know. So I'm grieving with the community. And therefore, it taps into something that's different. That's saying, actually, if I'm feeling like this because I've just lost my sister, I know what they're feeling like because they're feeling like this because they... So there's something about actually how we, we have a shared journey that we bring our whole self into the space, but also kind of connect with people. And just one final point is that we really do have an opportunity now, not just in response to actually uh, uh, the, 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 the COVID, but there is a, uh, people are still of an open heart and an open mind 
to actually kind of work differently. So I think, how do we use our national policies? You know, we have the whole idea, the agenda around anchor institution. How can we use that to really work with our, you know, huge assets and in our, you know, in our communities, our local authority cafes? How do we actually mobilize and, and make sure that our communities lead on those? They're the ones who are recruited to deliver those. So it's not just about entry-level entry jobs into our communities, but also how we use the opportunities with these national policies and agenda to really help us connect with our communities and transform uh, the conversation. I, I think there is something about not really actually kind of there's the bits that we fund and support our communities, but there is the bigger conversation about the whole public sector budget and how we begin to mobilize to really have the conversation about that sizable amount of uh, health economy, if you like, or the whole economy in terms of how we mobilize to deliver change. So I've gone beyond my time, so I'll just stop there. Thank you so much, Samira, and thank you to all of our panelists. Um, and, and now please do type in your questions to the Q&A. Um, and I will sort of interpret them and weave them together with some of the themes that have come up during the presentations. And I wanted to pick up on one theme from the question so far that really first arises in, in David Walter's question, which relates to this issue of unlearning during the pandemic that Samira has raised as well. You might think it quite a bit odd for an academic to be talking about unlearning, but I think it's a really important process, as Samira has mentioned. Um, and really, David's question is about he, he understands the community champion system and why it's valuable. But then he says, as a member of a marginalized community, why is it up to us to give the benefit of a doubt to a dominant society who have not treated us well and, and have not treated us well when we've been most vulnerable? Um, why is it us that have to do the engaging? And I think what I've heard from Samira and from Caroline and Pasha and also from me as an anthropologist, Natia as a health psychologist, is that we have unlearned a lot. During the, during the pandemic. Um, I mean, we were aware of structural inequalities, many of us have spent many years studying that, but this has been an unlearning at speed that you can't have any public health without doing things differently. So I'd really like um, whoever would like, uh, Simri, would you like to follow up on that point? And then um, maybe we can get um, Pasha and Caroline to speak to that. Um, so, so absolutely. I think when we did the, uh, we did the, a whole series program, we used quality improvement uh, a methodology to really look at vaccine equity and vaccine uptake. And one of the, I mean, you know, uh, it's no surprise to anyone is trust, trust, lack of trust. You know, unless you address that, you know, you're not going to address much. But one of the questions that was actually kind of addressed is why now? Why do you want to engage with us now? What is the urgency of now? And how, uh, and is it sustainable what extent is it genuine, honest, and sustainable? Uh, so I think there is, um, I think there is something about who holds the power, where power lies. Because if the decision lies in our system to actually kind of decide what we need to do and how we need to do it, then it's always going to be that power dynamics. I think we need to get into the unlearning needs to be about us as a system to create the space where we hand over power to communities to decide for themselves genuinely in every interaction that I've had is when you ask people and you give people uh, uh, power and you hand over power to people is that they deliver 10, a thousand times more. So I think this is not about actually kind of why the community should humor the system is then how do we actually kind of get the system to in a way move out of the way and allow communities to thrive and do what they do best. 
Yes, please, please do come in, Pasha. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Um, I mean, even if you look at um, what Caroline started um, in her presentation, she was talking about how we used to do things. And it was very much about how we have gone through this process and actually gone through quite a, a quick transition of, of modern learning. And I'm going to give you an answer that hopefully is, is, is based on examples. Um, when the pandemic started, um, I was um, working on the um, Place of Worship Task Force, which was um, pulled together immediately um, to deal with um, places of worship. Now, if we look at ethnically diverse communities, and as I said in my, my presentation, we need to move beyond the prism of faith only to engage with them. And I think this is an example of unlearning very quickly, because if you look at the, 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 um, the start of the, the, the pandemic, we set up the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the place of worship task force. So we're using faith as a prism to engage on the pandemic we and if you look at where we're at now with community champions it's more around we're looking at sports we're looking at um at, uh, grassroots uh, community organizations uh, we're, we're talking about um engaging with um uh, granular communities, uh, you know, neighborhoods at a neighborhood level, etc. So we're working at pace and we are transitioning our thinking. Now that's an example. Um, generally speaking, I think we do need to unlearn. I think we need to understand and this goes down to a local level. So I'm talking about us as a, from a central government policy point of view, but at, at local levels, I think local authorities need to unlearn a lot as well. They need to be brave enough to engage with communities that are beyond their stakeholders or comfortable stakeholders, shall we say, the people that they go to, the go-to people. So they need to become braver and move beyond those gatekeepers and, and, and start engaging in communities much more broader. Um, and I think that that is something that does need to happen. Thank you, Pasha. Caroline, please do come in. Yes, I, I, I'd like to pick up on Samira's point about getting out of the way. Um, I think we, we started in NHLD, we, we um, were running a programme called the Integration Area Programme um, before the, the pandemic, where we, we worked in five areas to try and pilot different approaches to supporting communities to work with local authorities to, to solve their own problems. So in order to, to do that, we would look at helping, you know, giving, giving the resources that, that the people need to, to get on and solve their own problems and helping them create the networks and partnerships that, that would do that. And what some of the, the research has come out from that is showing that actually where, where areas had, had started that process, um, they, they were much more resilient and, and ready to support each other during during the pandemic. And I think this is something that, that, that we've accelerated quite quite a lot during 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 the pandemic in terms of just being much more aware that, that what our role could be most effectively is, is giving communities what they need in order to help them so that they can support and, and um, get on and solve their, their own issues. And in that way also, communities can come together more and, and, and effectively work across what might have been barriers or boundaries or, or, or things have got in the way really of having a proper community and cohesion cohesive and, and, and well-functioning communities. And, and really, the last thing 
that many communities want is for us to come in and try and, and do that to them. This is something that, that's about us working with people to help them from the bottom up rather than, than trying to force our structures from the top down. I realise I've become very, very hands-on in this, uh, this question, but I, I do see things in a very visual way. And I think it is very much about going out there and, and helping communities to solve, to, to use their own resources and their own assets and giving them what, the resources that they need in order to, to facilitate that to happen. Thank you so much, Caroline. And this, um, a lot of the questions are actually around this theme of what actually is a community and how do you know that you're engaging with the right people? And perhaps even more importantly, um, on the resourcing question, how do you know who to resource? Um, and, and how do you decide who to, who to resource as well? You know, there are going to be uh, very difficult choices being made by the Treasury going forward. Um, you know, that's always the argument within government is trying to deal with, you know, proving cost benefit. This work that Samira has done, you know, 10, 15 years ago already showing the importance of these infrastructures. But then within government, um, how do you deal with that question of, you know, what actually is a community um, and outside government as well, who do you actually give resources to and how do you decide to do that? And how do you make a cost benefit analysis really human, you know, and really relational as well? Um, I don't know who wants to answer that one. <laughs> Samira, do you want to go? Shall I start? Um, I think this is probably the challenge, uh, probably for central government as, lo as, as well as for uh, local government and certainly our NHS, is who, who represents whom and are you given resources? I think for me, um, in faith leaders or community leaders or individuals can only represent themselves. But I think there are people in the communities who may not see themselves as community leaders, and those tend to be the natural leaders. Certainly when we started Community Champions Programme in White City, uh, the idea was actually there wasn't an infrastructure as such or as a community group as such that you can invest in and support and actually kind of develop. But there was Mary and there was Kisu, and Mary was actually kind of the one who was the centre manager, and she the, that's where the Tenants and Residents Association. So sometimes it's just about how well, you know, there are people in, in the system and in the community who know their, 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 their patch really, really well. I think there is something about how we mobilise our own existing kind of internal workforce. We have, you know, uh, certainly in northwest London, you know, there's about 40 to 45 percent of our workforce lives in the local area. Those are our communities. So how do we mobilize them? How do we support them? How do we actually kind of work with them to actually gather the insight and the intelligence? And, and the second, there is something about investing in communities. It may not be the right, there is no right community or right whatever, but I think there's something about investing in a place, investing in a community that actually kind of just reaps the benefit, but we just have to commit to something a bit longer term. I think uh, the, the challenge that we have sometimes is, and I, I certainly lobbied very hard right at the beginning for our Community Champions Programme, is that no funding is less than five years. And it was a real challenge. But actually anything less than that, and then we begin to actually then penalise communities for not delivering. You know, you've only given them two years. They didn't even have an infrastructure. So I think there's something about a longer term strategy and funding in the same way that we fund larger, much bigger organisation and expect no returns for the first 10 years. 
Sorry, that's my rambling sort of. Thank you, Samira. Actually, there are several people um, whose questions you've kind of answered. So Ben was wondering about those areas where there's very weak, no social infrastructure. What do you do about those? And obviously that longer term focus is really important for building community assets. Um, so, yeah, so I'll hand over. I think Caroline wanted to come in here. Yeah, I think Samira actually made some of my points for me. I was just going to talk about place and, and working in place um, and, and the the importance of, <clears throat> of that. And But there's something, I mean, and with community champions, because we have to mobilise quite quickly um, in, in the face of, of obviously quite a, a, a national pandemic, um, we, we used a, a variety of routes and ways of, of trying to, to reach out to community. So, so we did work through faith leaders. We did work through funding community sector organisations that have really good reach into communities and, and that we'd already built up relationships with often before. Um, we did empower them and ask them, those organisations to, to seek out very grassroots organisations that they could support and help as well. We also worked with our um, with well, 60 local authorities in this case where we identified that they had the, the greatest need. Um, but we asked our local authority partners also to, to reach out into their, their grassroots organisations. Um, so we tried to come at it from a quite a wide variety of, of different ways. But I think, for instance, with our integration area programme, where we, we did work or, or, and are working over a longer period um, in a place-based way, and they've had more opportunity to to be able to, to create those those routes and those um, sort of branches reaching out into into what what can be quite transient communities often as well um, and, and we talk about fragile communities but what we really mean are, are communities that, that, that need more opportunity to come together to, to create those networks um, so I think I don't know if I've had really come up with a brilliant answer there but I think there's a, a variety of different ways and, and means and, and also we think about communities really as, as in the way that they would identify and talk about themselves so for us, it's not about you know having a, a clear definition of our communities. It's much more about how people view where they are in their own places that they live, work, and come together. Great, thank you. I think I have a sort of um, can combine some questions into um, an ex exploration that Atia and uh, Nikita could probably help with around questions between division, stigma and overcoming division and stigma through social infrastructures. So um, we and also divisions between communities and local authorities. We have a question from Tony. Hi, Tony, from Tower Hamlets Care Centre, um, who talks about how councils really need to work more in partnership with charities, frontline organisations, because they don't know everything and they may have weird sort of images of what their communities are and who they are. And then another sort of related question on sort of division stigma and what to do about it um, from Alexandra. Oh dear, hello, Alexandra. Um, uh, she's particularly interested in, could you speak a bit more about how whether the programme managed to overcome divisions within neighbourhoods and communities? So these are issues around not romanticising community. What are the divisions and stigma and what can we do about those? Um, maybe Atir and Nikita can speak to that. Absolutely. So um, those are issues that champions have had to deal with within the uh, the existing programme. Um, so, of course, we have seen stigma increase uh, uh, for some communities during the pandemic. But what the champions programme appears to have done is enabled community organisations to work across 
racial divides across class barriers and across um, those geographical boundaries. So they're working together in a, in a, um, towards a shared goal and the resourcing has been there. So they're not fighting for resourcing. It, it's prevented some of that. It's minimised some of the, the um, what weakens communities when, when, when resources are, are limited. And so that, that, um, the, the shared goal um, and identity that they had um, as, as a champion um, appears to have started that process of unifying champions at an organisational level. And again, with time, and this is a process that, that, will, that, that does require time, um, the view of the champions is that that will then trickle down to their communities as well. So they're beginning to work in a more cohesive manner in a way that they hadn't envisaged themselves, working with people that they didn't think they would ever work with um, but um, but again it's that that shared goal and there is in moving forward there are elements of you know well-being and 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 health and social you know and community cohesion that everybody all communities um subscribe to so it's finding that shared language and that shared identity um, even if the specific activities vary within that Thank you so much, Atia. I just want to echo um, your words on this. And we specifically looked at stigma and social divides in both Leicester and Ealing quite deeply, um, Laura Knight, through our ethnographic work. Um, and I think that, that there are two things that really came out really strongly at a structural level, not speaking directly to community champions here. Um, the first one was that there was a real need to rethink the kind of uh, structural frameworks by which money and decision-making um, uh, is made. Uh, so, for example, having more diversity um, in uh, decision-making spaces when funding grants come out, having uh, more appropriate uh, monitoring and evaluation frameworks, really getting organizations and local authorities to think about if their uh, key performance indicators or KPIs are uh, uh, shaped for the communities that they're meant to serve. And, um, and I think the second point is just that, um, uh, and I think Samira also might speak to this as well, um, but in the uh, uh, community forums that we um, experienced being part of, um, particularly in Ealing, um, there was a real need to share stories of trauma and racism um, and a real need for those stories to be acknowledged by the powers that be. Um, and and we, re we really saw a shift in that kind of um, acknowledgement and space before and after uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And we think that uh, I, I think that that's a really positive opening there um, to start to acknowledge that some of that trauma um, and, and to, you know, filter that down through the kind of more structural mechanisms like ME frameworks and KPIs. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if Samira wants to follow up on that at all because she facilitated a lot of these conversations. Yeah. So, so I think um, absolutely. I was gonna just mention the the session we had. I think it was in Greenford and Perryvale, and uh, it was one of the last uh, uh, solutions that was actually kind of put forward. That there is no community infrastructure, and somebody said there is a library and there's a community cafe there. And the simple question was actually, do you think so that we can be used by everyone? And my question was very basic. It was, do you think it's accessible to everyone, or would everyone feel? that they own that space, who owns that space. 
And there was the realization about actually, and that relates to racism and the fact of where do people, which spaces do people feel welcoming? So I think there is something about how we unpick that and how we look at stigma and communities work together. But I love Atia's uh, point about actually kind of shared values or shared purpose. There is something about that. People don't come together around an abstract idea of community cohesion. But I mean, certainly when we worked with around child oral health and looking at improving oral health in one of the, uh, the estates, and it was really interesting. So, I, you know, we had Giovanni, who's Colombian, working with Kusu, who's, uh, you know, who's Sierra Leonean, who's working with Mary, who's Irish. They didn't have a problem about coming together to look at child oral health because it affected their children and their communities. So I think, and that, you know, community cohesion emerges out of those conversations rather than is the beginning of that conversation. So I think there's something about how we process these things and how we actually kind of push these agendas forward. Thank you so much, Samir, and, and a big thanks to all of our panellists. Um, I think I can sum up the sort of tail end of the conversation with the idea that we now are, are in a moment of shared values, um, or we should be, or we should be working towards those shared values, which are about recovery, a kind of inclusive recovery. Um, and some of these networks of social infrastructures um, has have enabled that. Um, and that as we move forward, we have to take this beyond uh, politics while acknowledging the very real exclusions that exist. So thank you very much, everybody, for attending today.